Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And today we are going to be diving into chapter 17, but we're going to take a special look at Babylon because we're going to be dealing with Babylon for the next couple of chapters. So we're going to look at some of the different views briefly, and then we're going to look at what scripture says about the city of Babylon. But before we jump into that, I want to know, Colleen, as an Adventist, what did you think Babylon was? Oh, the Catholics, of course. And I believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, mm-hmm. and I believed that all those Sunday churches were the daughters of the whore of Babylon, and that they had become part of the great Babylon. I also believed then that a person like I am now was the worst kind of Babylon, because I had known the truth, and now I go to church on Sunday. It would have been terrifying. It's no longer terrifying. Mm-hmm. But that's what I thought. Pretty limited view of Babylon. What about you? But I would say I had the same one. And I would say that we inherited that view yes, of Babylon. You know, the first time we see Babylon show up in the book of Revelation is in chapter 14, which is our Adventist three angels yes. message. You know, this is where we read fallen, point. fallen is Babylon the great. And so, and that's of course contrasted with the people who keep the commandments of God. So we believed that it was Catholicism. We believed that the Antichrist was the Pope, like you said. And Mm -hmm. we believed that if we ever left the Sabbath, yes, not Jesus, yeah, if we ever left the Sabbath, we would take the mark of the beast and that we would be apostate. That whole framework, which I firmly believe as a kid, and you know, it's all set out in the Great Controversy book by Ellen White. I firmly believed all that, and it didn't cause some internal struggle to think that worshiping on a day we considered to be the mark of a truly saved person. Mm -hmm. How did we ever think that a behavior we did and worshiping on a day was the mark of being right? Yeah. Well, because we grew up being told that. It was as true as the sky is blue. Now, I realize not everybody grows up in Adventism, but for those of us who did, there's no alternative. No. Because it all comes down to this great test that began in pre-creation history. You know, is God fair? Can his law be kept? There's this eternal law that includes all 10 of the commandments, and it has been given to mankind since we got here. (laughs) They don't understand. Actually, the Decalogue was given 430 years after Abraham was given the promise. So it came at a point in time, and it was to last until the seed would come, and that is Christ. It was a temporary covenant that God gave to Moses, but we were told it was eternal. It was the mark of the Creator, and the day you worship on determines the God you worship. That's the thing, you know, and that's a subtle deception because it sounds oh so good. It sounds pious and it sounds like you have texts to support it. You know, I mean, they can quote and pull their proof texts out. But when you think about it, the day you worship determines the God you serve. Mm-hmm. And that is backwards because it's how you do something is determining who you serve. I mean, it's like, God expresses himself in a day? No. Mm. There's no possibility for people to be loyal to an eternal sovereign God and perform their worship practices on earth a little differently. There's just no openness for that because the day is the all-important mark, which is interesting because in this view of Babylon being determined by the worship day, we also believed that the Sabbath was the seal of God. Mm -hmm. That's 
open blasphemy, Mm -hmm. if you will, because the Holy Spirit is the seal of God. So we really did twist and warp this thing. Yeah, we sure did. And the rest of scripture becomes like clay in their hands Mm -hmm. to work to support it because what Adventist has not been confronted with Romans 14? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I don't know anyone who didn't stop and pause and wonder, how can all of this other stuff be true if Paul says, it doesn't matter what day, you can see all days the same. How is that okay? And the answer always comes back to redefine what Paul's actually talking about. Yeah. How did you understand Romans 14? I didn't. Yeah. Honestly, I didn't. I think I had a view of God that... He was gracious to people who didn't understand, who weren't told, but that he also had a kind of test for the real remnant, for the real faithful, that he had kind of hidden salvation in between the texts of scripture. Oh, that's and had, such an interesting way to describe it. He had given Alan White the keys to unlock this for the last day stuff. So if we were really faithful and we were really listening, we'd recognize who Ellen White was yeah, and we'd follow her lead and she would unlock this mystery of how to please God and how to get through these last days wow. and what was really important to him and what's been lost. And it really appeals to human flesh, doesn't totally it? To be does. among the special and among oh, the, my. the inside group. It's like special knowledge. It's like Gnostic information. It actually makes me think of the Kabbalah or something. Yeah, it, you know? it's it's definitely extra biblical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that is so interesting. And the way you described it, that salvation is hidden in between the texts of Scripture and you have to figure out how to put them together, mm-hmm. that so describes how it seemed to me. Salvation was defined for me as a kid, as an Adventist, ultimately was defined as my willingness to obey. Those who obey are those who love God. Mm -hmm. And that may be true in a big picture sense, but I learned that my obedience is what made me a God lover, not that loving God made me obedient. Right. And obeying God made God love you because Ellen White said, God does not love naughty children. Yes, she did say that. And as I recently just read in the Sabbath School Quarterly, she specifically said in Steps to Christ that Jesus came to be our example. I've been memorizing Luke, the first part of Luke, and there's this passage in Luke 4 where Jesus went back to Galilee after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, and he started going to the synagogues and standing up to read in the synagogues. And the third verse of chapter 4 says, And he came to Galilee where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. I have suddenly remembered that was a memory verse when I was really little. Oh, really? Out of the King James, little different version, but that Jesus went, as was his custom, to the synagogue and Mm -hmm. every Sabbath, and that was a memory verse. We were supposed to follow his example. Well, that's not what was going on. He was born the Savior under the law, that memory verse, which I didn't understand as a child, immediately preceded his reading out of Isaiah that says, the Spirit of God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and appointed me to declare release to the captives and declare the favorable day of the Lord and said, this day scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) And they had you memorize the very front end of that. Yes. In terms of what Babylon is, 
It was all related to how Ellen White defined Sabbath. We talk about Adventism on this podcast, but this isn't unique to Ellen White. Many people approach scripture with the context of political events and cultural things, and then they, they will decide to interpret scripture based on some of that. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't help us see what we're looking at in the world. It does. But when you are interpreting scripture through what's going on in your immediate cultural (laughs) moment, then you're missing the first audience. You're missing the point. Scripture interprets scripture. When Ellen White was writing, her view that Babylon was Catholicism wasn't so unique. No, in fact, that is a pretty interesting thing to learn, that she was right out of her social milieu. Do you want to talk about that? So as we were preparing for chapter 17, we of course went (laughs) and listened to Pastor Gary Enrig teach through word search number 41, which you can find on the former Adventist YouTube channel if you'd like to watch it. And he talked about six major ideas that people have suggested about who Babylon the Great is referring to. He said they're not equally popular, but these are kind of the main ideas. Obviously, they don't encompass all of them Mm -hmm. because people get creative, don't they? (laughs) They do. So the first one he mentioned was that some people believe it's a reference to Jerusalem because it was in Jerusalem that the Lord Jesus had been killed and that Israel had apostatized in killing their Messiah. Mm -hmm. So people will often say, this is Jerusalem. Another, a large number of people see it as being Rome in the first century. And one of the reasons for that is because later in the book, we're going to see a reference to the seven hills. Mm -hmm. And so people will pull from that and they'll decide that this is first century Rome. And Gary pointed out that there's a challenge to that because the city of Babylon is also described as the mother of all prostitution. And Rome was hardly the beginning place for this. And also... Babylon is going to be present when Christ returns, and first century Rome obviously won't be. (laughs) Right. You know what was really interesting related to the seven hills? Hmm. I know I've mentioned this before, but it just seemed to fit right in here. When we were in Jordan in 2008, we took a trip to Israel, our pastor Gary and his wife, and we had an excursion into Jordan to see Petra. And while we were there, it was like a two and a half or three day excursion out of Israel into Jordan. We were driving up what's known as the King's Highway and past the capital of Jordan, which is the city of Amman. And our guide, our Jordanian guide, U.S. educated, but definitely Jordanian Muslim, he stood up and said, this is Amman. It is known as the city on seven hills. (laughs) I Hmm. thought, well, now, isn't that interesting? (laughs) There's more than one place that claims that. That is interesting. Yeah. I have no conclusions from that. Uh It was just interesting and a little disruptive to to what I thought I understood. So the third meaning for Babylon that Pastor Gary told us about was that in the Middle Ages, the Catholic order of the Franciscans considered Babylon to be Rome the Roman church, and they considered that it was Rome because they saw so many things in the church that needed reformation. Now, the interesting thing about the Franciscans was, and still is, that they are an order that takes a vow of poverty. They renounce all worldly wealth, and they live these poverty-stricken lives supported by the church. So, I guess in a sense, they're not truly poverty-stricken, but they don't have any of the fineries. 
And they grew out of this excess of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. The same thing that actually eventually spurred Luther and the other reformers to say, yes, this has to change. So the Franciscans saw that too, but they solved their own problem by joining this order of poverty so that they weren't living with all the wealth and flesh that the church itself had. So the Franciscans themselves also thought that Babylon was the Roman Catholic Church, at least as it was in their era. They might have believed that the Roman Catholic doctrines were okay. I don't know how far they took that, but they believed that the manifestation of the church in the world with the finery, the pomp and circumstance and all the wealth was Babylon. Well, and then that leads us, of course, into the next group, and that would be the reformers who were certain that it was Roman Catholicism. And as we look at what scripture says about Babylon, we're going to see that this Babylon, whatever it is, is a merging of false religion Mm -hmm. and economic prosperity. To be sure, medieval Catholicism, if not Catholicism through the years, really does have an aspect of that Mm -hmm. that is a merging of economic and religious abuses. And, you know, from my perspective today, I would say looking out there, I don't think Catholicism is alone in that. Mm -mm. In fact, I think we came from a tradition that shows a lot of that as well. Yeah. And even inside of Protestant Christianity in America, we see people who are departing to go into a prosperity gospel or a gospel that will afford them miraculous gifts and position. And so it's kind of a giving over of the teachings of scripture and the convictions that a born again person has when they come to faith for something else. Yeah, that's a very good point. You're right. I see that. So this was interesting. I had never heard of this one. Gary said that many believe it's the city of Rome rebuilt in the end times and that it becomes a strong national power. And he said that there was a lot of excitement from this group during the Iraq war in the 90s. I didn't know that. I was firmly ensconced in my Adventism until the last part of the 90s and very Adventist during the Iraq war. And I was completely unaware of that. But isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. And what's interesting to me about that is that the definition of Babylon morphs through the history of the world, depending on political events. Yeah. And I want to say, the Bible is talking about something that's very specific, and it can't be completely determined by common political events. Mm -hmm. It can't be something movable. The one thing I will say, though is when I think about the reasons that these groups had for considering these systems to be a part of Babylon, they are far more on point than the idea that it has anything to do with going to church on Sunday. And in fact, related to that, I would see that considering that it is an economic and spiritual morphing and compromise, all of these systems may be part of Babylon, Yeah, whatever it actually turns out to be. So finally, the sixth possible meaning, and this is the one that Gary Inrig personally believes that it probably is, is that it's a metaphor for what he calls the city of man, especially in the form of apostate religion, as you said, and economic power, all of which is in rebellion against God. And if that is the definition of Babylon, and it does seem to fit the characteristics of Babylon. If that is the definition, then I can see that there could be more than one organization, Mm -hmm. more than one manifestation that's part 
of Babylon. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. It does. And in his teaching, Gary pointed out that he believes Catholicism, Rome, certain branches of mainline Protestantism, and their entrenched positions in many countries are all forms of Babylon. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And I definitely can see that there is much about the top levels of Seventh-day Adventism that would also fit with that. Yeah. Well, Nikki, why don't we read Revelation 17, 1 to 6, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Babylon, about how it came to be, about what we can know about it from its history. Then we'll talk a little bit about the main ideas from these six verses. Okay. So again, this is from the Legacy Standard Bible. Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth." Then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. You know, this just really generates in my mind the images I used to see in the pamphlets advertising Adventism's prophecy seminars. The woman who rides the beast, they might say. I've seen that title more than once. And it would be this gaudily dressed woman in scarlet clothes with bright red fingernails and bright red lipstick, holding a goblet of wine on a hideous beast. It's an amazingly vivid visual that I just can't get out of my head. You want to say thank you very much. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I also want to mention that the idea of an Adventist woman when I was growing up wearing bright red fingernail polish Mm -hmm. or bright red lipstick was definitely connected to this harlot of Babylon that's you really don't want to do that. I remember my grandfather taking my hands in middle school. I had nail polish on, red nail polish, and he just looked at them. He was a quiet man for the most part, but he just looked at them, held them in his hand, dropped my hand and said, your hands are bleeding and walked <gasps> away. And I thought, oh, Grampy doesn't like my nail polish. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, I didn't understand that, wow. it, that it was really actually very bothersome to him. Yeah, I learned very carefully that one might wear clear nail polish, and if one was careful, a very, very light pink. But you wouldn't want to do anything that would really look red or call attention to it, uh, because, you know, that was worldly. (laughs) It was definitely like the harlot. Well, speaking of the harlot, (laughs) Gary talked about the two titles here that we read about, the Great Harlot Mm -hmm. and Babylon the Great. And he talked about the fact that these titles are rooted in the Old Testament. So beginning with the harlot, he said that the imagery of prostitution or adultery was common in the Old Testament especially in the major and minor prophets. And it was used both of pagan nations and of Israel and Judah when they were in apostasy. 
there are some really, well, even lurid, you might say, passages in the Old Testament that describe Israel's and Judah's apostasy in terms that are kind of indelible in your mind and that are really horrifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really clear to me that God saw apostasy of worship as equal to sexual immorality. I mean, it's like you can't separate apostasy and immorality. And if a person fell into one, he would fall into the other. And that seems to be what happened with Israel. They apostatized to the point of even in their worship, offering child sacrifices to Moloch. And after persistent refusal to repent, God sent both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom into exile out of their land. Isn't it interesting how sacrificing children follows sexual immorality and indulgence? I've pondered that too and haven't really come up with a complete direct line of connection, and yet it's there. But don't we see it in society even today? Yes, absolutely. And I want to say again, coming from my background in Adventism, it's taken me a while to understand that abortion is a form of child sacrifice. But I didn't see it for so many years because I didn't know that the unborn were fully human because I didn't understand that humans have immaterial spirits that are part of their identity from the time they're conceived. All you have to do is study the story in Luke about the infant Jesus before he's born and the infant John, and you can see that they are full human beings before they're born. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand that as an Adventist, and Mm -hmm. I never thought of abortion as something to be looked at as a horror. You know, most people would say that abortions aren't sacrificing to a god or to an idol, but I think that's a very narrow view of idolatry. I agree with I that. I think that we can make idols of our own freedom and our own autonomous identity, and that's another podcast, but I do see that reflected here even totally. when you look at a nation that is in rebellion against God and actively involved in apostasy and indulgence. Yeah. In his teaching, Pastor Gary mentioned, he only mentioned Ezekiel 16 and also Ezekiel 23 and talked about how difficult they are to read. And I went and I read them and Mm -hmm. I concur. (laughs) It was very difficult to read, but it's helpful because when we're looking at something like this, what is Babylon the Great? Yeah. Rather than pulling from cultural context, we can look in scripture yeah. And we can use a hermeneutic that allows us to find the patterns in scripture, the use of words, the use of examples and metaphors. And and we can see that God has historically used these kinds of words to talk about idolatry and apostasy. Yeah. And so it fits Then we could translate that into what we're looking at in Revelation. That is such a good point, Nikki. And you know what? In none of these descriptions, and this is old covenant writing, Mm-hmm. They're under the Mosaic Covenant. In none of them do these descriptions really include days. Now, he may refer to their breaking the covenant. God may refer to his people dishonoring him with their sacrifices because their hearts were far from him. The issue of apostasy and immorality has nothing to do with their actual practices in terms of their observances. Mm-hmm. It has to do with their hearts being far from him with their ceasing to honor him. And as they cease to honor him, they cease to honor each other and their own identities. 
not only that, but they begin to fear and desire the approval and the resources of the world over the provision and the fear of the Lord. So they were giving over their families and their lifestyles to this kind of paganism in order to get alliance and power Mm -hmm. and riches. That's right. And don't you see that today? I mean, it's a consistent theme through human history. It really is another form of, did God really say? Because God told them, I will be a God to you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. All Mm -hmm. of the things that they were giving into in order to receive are things God said he'd give them, that he would give them as they remained faithful. That is such a great point. But what they did have to give up in order to be faithful to God, they had to give up the approval of unbelieving nations, and they had to give up their, quote, right to worship at the pagan high places and to worship with the pagan ceremonies and to indulge in the pagan temple prostitution. And all of this stuff happened not the way God set it up. All of this prostitution and all of this defilement did not happen at the temple in Jerusalem, ideally. It happened in the pagan temples, Mm -hmm. and it had to do with not honoring God. So there are a lot of places in the Old Testament where you can read more about this kind of apostasy, this kind of uh, prostitution, as Scripture talks about it. You can read about this being used of pagan nations in Isaiah 23 in the Oracle against Tyre and Sidon, or you can read more of how it's used against Israel and Judah in Isaiah chapter one and in 57. And if you can stomach it, you can go to Ezekiel 16 or 23 or even Hosea. It's all over the Old Testament. It is. And you know, I heard this one sentence that Pastor Gary used as he was teaching through this, and it was a sort of a summary statement that was very powerful for me. He said, idolatry and immorality are conjoined twins. Mm -hmm. You really can't separate them. And I think about that, Nikki, I just have to say, coming from the perspective of an Adventist who is no longer an Adventist, who is really a Christian, I know I'm born again. Mm -hmm. I look back at it and I realize that the idolatry of the Sabbath and the idolatry of my free will was conjoined with immorality. I didn't know to call immorality. Mm -hmm. It was conjoined with immorality of abortion. Now, I didn't practice abortion, Mm -hmm. but I approved it. Mm -hmm. A kind of Romans one thing. All the things that the Bible lists as immorality are conjoined with idolatry. And it's like you said earlier, it's idolizing our free will and our independence away from being submitted to the Lord. And I would even say it's using a false sense of morality and obedience to increase our bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. With our bringing in the tithe and, oh, and yes. watching God bless us and... It didn't really work that way for me, but I wanted it to. (laughs) And I was told it should. Yeah. (laughs) So a second title for this harlot is The Great Babylon, Babylon the Great. And we can't talk about Babylon without going back to Babel. Oops, Babel. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of love that. (laughs) I don't know when that will go away. So we'll find this beginning in Genesis chapter 10. Yes. Now, Genesis chapter 10, it's an interesting list of the table of nations as they developed after the flood. Now, remember in chapter 9 of Genesis, Noah came out of the ark and God gave him the command again, like he had to to Adam before, fill the earth and subdue it. Mm -hmm. 
the next thing we see then is chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we see the table of nations and who each person descended from. And it's interesting that in the middle of this list of people, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, there is kind of an exposition of one particular person. It's expanded a bit, and it tells what that person did and what he founded. Now, I'm going to just read a little bit here from Genesis 10, 6 to 12. The sons of Ham, and you remember Ham was one of Noah's three sons. Mm -hmm. There was Shem, who became the father of the Semites, the Israelites, and even the Arabs are all Semites. And there was Japheth, the father of the European Gentile people. And then there was Ham. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rama and Sabtika. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went out to Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth Ir and Kalah and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Now, it's just interesting that in this list of people who developed the nations after the flood, there's this time spent on Nimrod. Mm -hmm. I had known that he had founded Babel, but I had completely not internalized, although I've read it, I can tell you I've read it many (laughs) times, I had completely never internalized that Nimrod also built Nineveh. He established Nineveh. And Nineveh, remember, is where Jonah went. He tried not to go, but God (laughs) got him there. He tried very hard. And they were converted. Nineveh also was the capital of Assyria, that cruel nation that ultimately took the northern nation of Israel into captivity. So Nimrod was a really significant person. Yeah, it was interesting too to learn that his name means we will revolt or let us rebel. It's like a community effort against God. He's described to be the first Gabor, I believe is how Gary pronounced Mm -hmm. it, which means a powerful, strong, mighty individual. He was an empire builder and a kingdom establisher, and he began at Babel. And it was interesting when Gary talked about him being a hunter or a mighty warrior, he said that it's believed that he was actually a hunter of people and that according to a rabbinic tradition, he was called the great tyrant. So he wasn't like someone they admired, (laughs) right? He was a tyrant. And the fact that he does this before the Lord seems to have a negative context in light of chapter 11, which we'll get to when Babel becomes significant as mass rebellion against God. You know, it's interesting to me that Babel, the Tower of Babel, was built on the plain of Shinar. So Shinar is in modern-day Iraq, and Shinar is also where ancient Babylon was built when Daniel was taken captive. It says in the first chapter of Daniel that the furnishings from the temple were taken by Babylon and brought to Shinar. And that's where Babylon was It's also interesting, there is a vision in Zechariah where he sees 
two angels carrying an ephah, which is like a basket that was used for trade and for measuring and for measuring out for trade. And into this basket is placed a little woman that's taken out of Israel, and the angels carry this basket into Shinar and deposit it there. And the meaning of the dream or the vision is that the evil core of whatever this evil apostasy is, was being removed from Israel and being planted in its first original place, which was Shinar. Wow. And I just find that interesting. It makes sense of the title that Babylon is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And you know, we have to be able to see these words as meaning what they say, even Mm -hmm. if we don't fully understand the identity when this all comes to pass. But the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, that means the source, the beginning, Mm -hmm. the, the one that brought it forth. And I think we all understand that's what a mother is. Mm-hmm. A mother is the one that brings forth something, mm-hmm. a child. And the mother of harlots, we have to take that to be a metaphor for what this is actually saying. It kind of reminds me of Jesus looking at the Pharisees in the book of John and telling them that they are of their father, the devil. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they were born Israelites, yeah. but he's saying their natures, their commitments are from evil. So father, mother, we have to understand the words to mean what the words say, even if we can't completely explain how this is looking at the end times. So then we move into Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to just read through to verse nine. It says, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, come, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth." That's so interesting. So the scattering of the people and the confounding of their languages to facilitate the scattering was a judgment from God on the hubris of these post-flood people who said, nope, we don't want to scatter. We want to congregate and build a city and make a name for ourselves. And I find it really interesting, and I don't know how to explain this, but you know, God has his complete knowledge of this. But it is interesting that God insisted that the earth be filled. Mm -hmm. He was never saying, preserve yourselves, watch it. Don't put too many people on the earth. He's saying, fill the earth, take care of it, 
fill the earth. And these people instead tried to make a name for themselves. That is an attitude that I think has never gone away from humanity. Oh, no. Which I think is part of why we can say that this is the mother of all abominations. It is essentially the spirit of fallen man. It is. I really appreciated it. Gary took the time to talk about this being a type of anthropomorphic satire. He said, here you have these men who've come together and they're going to make a name for themselves and they're building this tower that reaches to heaven and God says, let's go down and see Uh what they're up to. (laughs) He's so above it all. He's got to go down and see what they're doing. What is this big significant thing that they're doing? And he gives commentary on what happens when fallen humanity unites. This is what they begin to do. Just absolute rebellion against him. And I love the fact that he says, let us go down and confuse their language Mm because we see that Trinity language there. But I also love the fact that it exposes yet another flaw in Ellen White's supposed authoritative teaching and prophecy, because she said that this tower was meant to protect them from another flood. That's right. And there's no hint of that here. No. This is all about being smarter than God. Mm -hmm. And I heard an interesting commentary on these ancient ziggurats. I heard an interesting commentary on these ancient ziggurats. It was in a little video clip produced by Zondervan, the Christian publishing company. And this man was saying that the Tower of Babel assumes an even more interesting profile when you realize that the way that those ancients worshipped their gods was to build a tower and that hopefully the god would then approve of them and come down to their tower and meet them at their tower. So if that is what these Babel people had in mind, and it's really then very interesting if God says, well, let's go down there (laughs) and let's take care of it. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's kind of fascinating. Now, I'm not an archaeologist and I'm not an anthropologist, so I can't verify that. But it made sense. And he said it was based on recent research into the ancient Mesopotamian cultures. That's really interesting. It was. If that's what was going on, then there's another lesson in that, that we are to do what God tells us to do and not try to come up with new ways to access God, new ways to get him, new ways to get his approval. He sets the rules. He does. And if he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if he says, repent and believe. And if he says that all those that the father saves, he'll keep, then that's the rule book. We don't have to add Sabbath keeping, vegetarianism, veganism. We don't have to add all of the extra things that honestly, the Seventh-day Adventist organization prides itself on. Yeah. And you know what? That's building a tower. Sure is. God will now approve of us. So Gary says that we see here that Babel becomes a representation of the city of man in opposition to God that demonstrates human technology and skill to build a city, but it ultimately can't hold it together because it's in rebellion against God. And they really were showing ingenuity and advanced technology at this time. Yeah. The fact that it said, let us bake bricks at that time, the average people were using sun-dried bricks. Mm -hmm. or extant stone, but there isn't really any stone in this rich Shinar Valley. So they had to make bricks, but they were using some sort of technology so that it wasn't just sun-dried bricks. They were using some sort of kiln. They definitely had some advanced technology. And I think it's kind of fascinating to consider what would happen if suddenly the people in charge of building couldn't communicate 
The engineers who had the structural concepts in mind suddenly couldn't talk to the brickmakers, who suddenly couldn't talk to the street planners, and they had to scatter. And all of their knowledge was fragmented and dissipated throughout the earth, and they couldn't collaborate. Mm-mm. It's kind of fascinating. So he scatters them over the face of the earth, but then years later, enter King Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon is built up again, and Babylon is once again representing rebellion against God. And it becomes a symbol of God's enemies in the Old Testament. And we see the title, the Great Babylon or Babylon the Great, coming out of Daniel 4.30, when Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his palace and just, ooh, look what I've built. Look what I've done. Look all that I have done. And of course, God quickly humbles him. He doesn't scatter him across the face of the earth, but he sends him out to pasture. He sure does. Until he humbles himself and God grants him repentance at that point. So we also see that during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon becomes a source that God uses to judge his own people. And they are the great enemy of God's people. Not only do they defeat Judah, but they destroy the temple, they disperse the Jews, and this begins the time of the Gentiles. I think that little piece right there, the time of the Gentiles, is one of the things that has changed my perception since we did the book of Daniel. Yeah. I had forgotten, I know I've heard it, it never really gone in and stuck. That Babylon taking Judah, that whole image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Mm -hmm. those hideous beasts in Daniel's dream that represented the empires of the world, those are the indications of the Gentile nations that were going to dominate Israel. And Israel had not been dominated as a nation after their exit from Egypt, which God had accomplished, they had been an independent nation up until that time. And from that time on, Israel has never been fully independent in the world as a nation. Now we have the modern state of Israel, Mm -hmm. but that is still not the end of all things. I mean, they're still an unbelieving nation. And although their existence is clearly something God has granted and ordained, It's not by accident, it's by God's design, and yet Jerusalem is still trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's still the case. It's interesting that when God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream of the statue, and he started with the head of gold and said that this is Babylon, and then he works his way down the statue, explaining all of the future Gentile kingdoms that will come, and the statue stands all the way until this rock carved without hands then crushes the feet of the statue. And at that time, all of the statue falls, which means all of that statue is there until that moment. And we know that that moment is when Christ comes in his kingdom. So Babylon, though it's not Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, right? Babylon continues to exist until the end. The spirit of Babylon, the, the human nature. Yeah. And now in Revelation, we see Babylon being depicted as the woman riding the beast. So we see that Babylon is still there. Mm-hmm. From Babel to the end of Revelation, when Babylon is finally destroyed. Isn't that so interesting? It really is interesting. It makes me think of Paul talking about there being many antichrists right now. The spirit of the antichrist is in the world, but an antichrist person is going to eventually come. It's like this spirit of Babylon, this human rebellion against God, united against God, 
focusing on idolatry and even economy, it all just plays out at every point in human history. We can see whispers of this Babylonian mindset. It's true. And even Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter refers to she who is in Babylon when he's greeting everybody at the end of his letter. Many people, many scholars believe that this was a code word for Rome. Mm-hmm. So to use a word like Babylon for Rome indicates that even the earliest believers saw this Babylonian worldview at play even in other nations. That's actually a really interesting point. Our pastor ended this particular teaching through these first six verses, and we will go back and flesh this out a bit more in future podcasts, but there were seven things in the first seven verses that we can take, seven main points. The first one is the fact that she has the name, which we've talked about, the great prostitute. It stands for immorality. It's a name that is used seven times in this chapter alone. And this great Babylon has the cup of immorality in her hand. She represents the seductive woman who is offering whatever is desired. That is the essence of this Babylon that is going to be riding the Antichrist beast. The second thing he mentioned is that she's seen sitting upon many waters, and the context implies control and dominance. And Gary pointed out that in chapter 18, verse 7, she says that she sits as queen. Yeah. And then again in verse 15, John explains that the waters refer to people's multitude, nations, and languages. So this is a global dominance. In some ways, she is both dependent on the beast and in power over the beast. It's a symbiotic relationship. She can't really exist without him, and he somehow needs her. And the interesting thing is that ultimately, she's going to be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. Mm -hmm. God uses his enemies to do his will. And it's fascinating that these powers that depend on each other, that take power and authority from each other and use each other for their own gain, ultimately turn on each other, Mm -hmm. evil cannot sustain unity. And the Antichrist will destroy the people he uses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, as you said that, it it makes me think of something that that I read that you wrote when I first was coming out of Adventism in your testimony. You mentioned that people who are not born again, people in their fallen nature are not capable of having healthy relationships. And it just makes me think even on a Mm -hmm. much more smaller scale, one of the struggles that we have when we're embedded in false religion is honesty, integrity, loyalty, and healthy relationships because people use each other and turn on each other apart from an external standard of what love is and how we're to love. That's true. And we see this played out at an international level here. Mm -hmm. So the third thing Gary mentioned is that the emphasis here in this passage is on her intoxicating and corrupting seductive powers. And, you know, we saw that her dominance is over the whole world. Well, these kings of the earth commit harlotry with her. Uh So we also have an economic and a false religion component. And he said the dwellers of the earth have also become intoxicated by this. So it's not just the leaders. Mm -hmm. It's not just the international leaders. It's everybody. And we're going to really see that in chapter 18 when she falls. And we're going to see how every level of society and economic development suffers and mourns her. The fourth aspect that we see here, we see in verse three, 
and she is carried into the wilderness. The woman on the scarlet beast, which has the seven heads and the ten horns, is the Antichrist. Now, it's interesting that this beast is clearly the Antichrist. It's the same beast we saw rising out of the waters in chapter 13. Same description with an exception. In this particular passage in chapter 17, the beast is scarlet. Mm -hmm. We don't know. I mean, we can only say this is what we can see, what we can observe. But what we can observe is that in chapter 12, John had the vision of the woman with the crown of stars clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet about to give birth and the red dragon was waiting to devour Mm -hmm. the child. So here we see that same color. Mm -hmm. The dragon represents Satan. The Antichrist represents his person. The fifth thing Gary mentioned is that there's an emphasis on her excessive clothing. And what he said about that is that she's essentially portrayed as a high class call girl dressed to entice and impress. So the sixth thing he pointed out is that she's also named Babylon the Great, and this title is used six different times in the passage. And he said that she is drunk with the blood of the saints, of the witnesses of Jesus. And we'll look at that a little closer next time. So as we look at this, as we start into this part of the end of all things, when Babylon is going to be identified and destroyed, we have a logical question where am I in all of this? What do I need to do? How do I know I will not be seduced by Babylon? And if you're asking that question, there's one answer for all of us. It's simple, and it is the gospel. The Lord Jesus came to take our sin, and there is one command for all humanity to believe God to believe what he said, to believe his provision. And in the New Testament, his command to us is to believe in the one whom he sent. And if you trust Jesus, if you believe that the Bible tells you the truth about yourself, that you are innately, inherently sinful and dead in sin, unable to please God and need to be rescued, come to the Lord Jesus. He has taken your sin He has died your death, and he has broken the curse of the law, the curse of God on all humanity who sins by becoming sin for us, by being buried and by rising on the third day. If you trust him, if you trust what he has done, you will pass at that moment from death to life. And all of these events in the book of Revelation you will know are true and will happen as they are written, but you will always be safe in Jesus. Your spirit will never die, and you will have eternal life with him. There's only one thing we can do, and that is to trust him today. And join us next week as we continue our walk through the book of Revelation. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.